0: Hello my friends, today we're talking to Dan, the Chief Product Officer at Sophos, and we discuss the rise of the ransomware economy and how we can fight back, findings from Sophos' 2022 threat report, and why it's important to find the right balance between threat detection and prevention in your security strategy. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. is the Modern CTO Podcast.
1: Yeah, so I think it, it started at a pretty early age. Uh, I was introduced to kind of a, a super micro is about the size of a scientific calculator. It's called the Timex Sinclair. And it was, you know, one you plug your TV into for your monitor and a little tape deck in to, to, to save your work on a, on a cassette tape. And what was interesting is the keyboard was laid out with uh, the basic programming keywords uh, kind of associated with the key. So, you know, G would be the the go-to and, and you know, T would be then and I would be if. And, and it helped you learn to program in BASIC pretty quickly. And, you know, the first time I wrote my own program with that, it was like a whole new world was unleashed to me. And so I quickly, you know, overpowered that thing and graduated to, to a Texas instrument TI-44A, and then my father worked for IBM and so when the IBM PC came out you know i got i got one right away and that just that was mind blowing you know to to have at that time you know a pretty powerful pc by the standards of the day uh and be able to just do un- incredible things with it and you know i'm not a terribly artistic person but program be, became a way for me to be creative and for me to do things that, that, that others uh, couldn't do. And, and it just corresponded well with my high school, finally offering a computer science class. And, um you know, I got involved in that, that was really exciting. And then, you know, carried it on through, through college and, uh, you know, the technology just changing so rapidly and and I love it. So I, I'm, you know, I'm a notorious early adopter. So just always kept, uh, going on with things, and then uh, my first job was um, with an engineering consulting firm who typically built power plants. So they were more kind of an industrial mechanical engineering company, and they wanted to build an IT practice to help you know kind of modernize IT infrastructure for these plants outside of you know far, uh, you know main mainframes and the like. And uh, the the short story is I I ended up being the only person on the team that actually could code well, and so I had to write all the code for everything. You know, um, you know, lots of lots of C code, uh, C plus, you know, R base, and then this kind of new thing Oracle was starting to get pretty popular. And so one day they dropped a you know six inch book on my desk and said you're now the Oracle DBA. And so I had to learn Oracle, and and of course. Uh, people know Oracle. There's a whole programming language associated with Oracle uh, that comes around it. And so I, I learned that and started writing tons of code in that. And I ended up working on a project where Oracle uh, Consulting came in to help the project. And it turns out I was teaching the Oracle Consultants more about Oracle than they were teaching us. So Oracle hired me. And uh, I got an opportunity to go work on uh, in their emerging technologies team who at the time was focused on interactive television and interactive television was really the precursor to the intranet. And so uh, we built this amazing kind of proof of concept uh, off of a product called uh, Macromedia Director, which is kind of like a multimedia development tool. And we just blew everyone away. So now all these telcos wanted us to go build interactive television. Uh, The problem was there was really no real technology (laughs) behind the demo. So uh, we inherited basically a media pump, we called it, from another company that the Oracle CEO Larry Ellison owned. Uh, called the Ncube, and we had to build everything else. And so uh, we had set top boxes with no operating systems, so we had to write operating systems. We had to write publishing platforms and billing platforms, and and it was uh, advertising platforms, and and it was it was as an engineer as candyland. I mean, we just it, we just had a ball. We were just blazing new territory everywhere we went. Uh, the only thing that could stop us. Was the internet? So, as the internet <laughs> started, you know, gaining in popularity, all the telcos were like, "No, out with interactive television, in with the internet," and uh, and so a lot of that cool innovation kind of fell by the wayside. So I ended up kind of making the leap into the startup world and did did a couple startups. First one was very successful. Uh, the second one was my own company. I founded it and uh, got I got Sony to fund it. Actually, three different divisions of Sony, all who hated each other, uh, which made my (laughs) life uh, very interesting as the CEO. Um, How does that work? uh, Uh, It it, it was tough. Um, You know, it was Sony Pictures, it was Sony Electronics, and it was Sony Music. And they they were very competitive with one another. Obviously, the Electronics uh, team was really focused on making sure Sony Electronics products were highlighted as part of the solution, where Music and Pictures didn't care. They just wanted you know, you know, people to, to, you know, publish uh, stuff to this platform. So in essence, we we built kind of YouTube before there was YouTube, but then in the uh, genius decision of the, the young foolish CEO, we pivoted off of building YouTube and just start building the technology that at the time allowed you to publish all these different videos. And we started licensing it to Disney and you know, uh, discovery network and and obviously Sony and the like. Um, so, so things were going pretty well until, you know, if, if people recall in the kind of late nineties, early two thousands, the internet, you know, dot .com bubble burst. And even though we weren't really a dot .com, it just, it it affected everybody. And so, um, we, you know, we started to have lots of struggles. We had to make a lot of layoffs. I actually had to lay off my mother-in-law, which, uh, Most people would maybe relish at, but uh, I love my mother-in-law, so it was tough. And it it was just a a tough time. I would call it the most expensive MBA you could ever get because I lost a lot of personal wealth I may have made from the previous one in this, uh, but I wouldn't have traded for the world. I learned so much about myself. I think I learned humility from this uh, up until that point. Uh, I was always a very you know successful you know technical person, engineer, developer, and this was really the first adversity I've ever had in my career, and it was pretty heavy. You know, when you when you have to tell somebody they don't have a job anymore, that's that's heart wrenching. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was a pretty young kid to have to to do that. And uh, the good news was that you know the company ended up selling, and, and things worked out well. And then the the next stage for me is I actually joined Microsoft. And so Microsoft wanted me to to lead the digital imaging group, uh, digital media group, excuse me. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm done. I'm done with digital media. And so they they kind of pointed me at the cyberspace. And as an engineer, I knew about cyber. I didn't have a lot of experience in it. But man, I jumped at the opportunity for two what, reasons.
0: What year was that when you're, you're that was entering was cyberspace? Yeah, it was yeah.
1: 2002. So uh, you know, cyber at the time wasn't anything like it was today. It was, you know, mostly just some antivirus companies, you know, some pretty, pretty simplistic firewalls. Um, and it was more thought of as attacks than it is today. And and so, you know, convincing anybody to use cyber, just you had to convince them of the threat before they were willing to even engage with you. Now, obviously, we don't have to to teach that. But um, you know, I had an g- opportunity to work for a great company like Microsoft in a very challenging technical space like cyber, and uh, had a I had an opportunity to work in the Windows division. You know, building all the core security for Windows, and I had a great opportunity to work with people like Bill Gates on a regular basis. So Bill, you know, security was his focus area at that time, and so I spent a lot of time with him. And then uh, my last. My last boss at uh, Microsoft was actually Satya Nadella, who's the current CEO. So I had a chance to work with some great people, and it was a great experience. Um, but you know, Microsoft wanted to kind of move you around the company and get other experiences, and, and I wanted just to be in cyber. So I left the company, uh, joined another kind of legendary cybersecurity company called RSA, um, and uh, and kind of worked there for a while. Had some some good experience there, and then uh, Sophos. Uh, lured me over. And, you know, Subless was always known as a very, very uh, well-executing kind of high quality team. Um, I would say that their products were known at the time for being spectacularly average. Um, They were really good. They were not, you know, ever kind of bleeding edge, but they weren't usually behind the market either. They were just right kind of you know, the, if if this was Goldilocks, they were the porridges in this in the middle, right? It's not too hot, <laughs> it's not too cold. And uh, part of what happened though is the cybersecurity ecosystem was starting to move at a pretty frenetic pace. And Sophos, you know, has been around since the late '80s, and they've shown an amazing ability to kind of stay up with the time, stay relevant, no matter what the security landscape looked like. But as the security landscape was starting to, you know, uh, expeditiously speed up we needed a, a new approach and, and kind of a new portfolio of next generation security products. So that's that was my focus. So, um, you know, Sovos is a pretty big company, about over 4,000 employees globally, uh, are really kind of focused in two key areas, you know, endpoint security and network security. Um, our company's about 50-50 in, in, in the billings there. And that's underpinned, you know, uh, that pretty broad portfolio is underpinned by a couple things uh, that we think are, are somewhat unique to us. Uh, we have a platform that we call Sophos Central, and what we did is we kind of built this developer platform. Um, so internal Sophos developers can build on it; they can leverage, you know, common microservices underneath, uh, a whole bunch of uh, common uh, componentry, and, and we've also created APIs so third parties can participate in in this ecosystem. And and what we've did further is we we've started to build kind of. Uh, analytics capabilities and and kind of threat hunting capabilities on top of this so we created what we call the adaptive cybersecurity ecosystem and this is the ability in essence to have a security system that uh, similar to kind of Darwin's theory of evolution can adapt to risk uh as necessary and so we provide a lot of uh, ai on top of that um, but you know the human operator uh the, the the security operations center operator still has a huge role in that but our job is really to make them As efficient as possible. There's a there's a glutton for, uh, or I should say, a lack of of uh, experienced bodies to fill the security practitioner openings that we have in the industry. So we want to try and provide as much efficiency as we can through AI. uh, So so we can leverage the folks that we have, make them better, smarter, faster, and uh, so we put a lot of lot of focus on that. We call it the AI driven SOC. We don't ever think. You're going to eliminate the human from the sock, but we just want to make them, you know, more powerful. It's kind of like our our version of the $6 million man, you know, better, faster, stronger.
0: (laughs) So on the adaptability side of things, is that adaptability automated or driven by the human? And if it's, or both? And if it's automated, what's the data that's going into it? Is it like? It,
1: it, it's a great question. It's a great question. So it's it's actually both. So right, you know, any data science, machine learning, AI has to learn from something. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we've built some some incredible capabilities to to train on real world data, live real world data. And so when we started our journey with with AI. Uh, one, it always helps to have a great team. Um, and so we have one of the best data science leaders, our chief scientist, Josh Sachs, who's like literally the the founder of using AI in the cybersecurity uh, medium. And we started with one AI model and it was to block malicious portable executables. And now we have about 38 to 40 models running live and probably twice that many in development, running silently, you know, in various stages of development. And one of the things that we're focused on is learning from what the human does and then automating that, right? So we know if a certain circumstance, a human operator does steps A through, you know, D, next time we see a similar circumstance, let's do A through D for them so they can focus on, you know, E through L, you know, and so it just more and more we learn from how the human operates, the more we can automate for them and the smarter we can get about doing that. And you know, the last thing you want to do is automate something that you shouldn't have automated or make a decision that you shouldn't have made it actually makes life harder for the operator. So it's really important to do that. So part of our business is we run um a what we call the managed threat response service. So it's a service we operate on behalf of customers. So we have our own kind of uh, global security operator, security practitioner, uh, set of experts that we can run our models against. So we know exactly how they operate. So it's the human informing the artificial
0: intelligence and then the artificial intelligence informing the human. So it's a great virtuous cycle. That's really cool. So on the topic of AI, when I was doing research for this interview, I saw there's this whole set. So there's sophos.com and there's like a whole other side of the website. That's ai.sophos.com. And has and there's like a ton of content published there, by the way, like you guys really put out a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, and, so we
1: obviously in our history, uh, we've always had a, a 24-7 global threat intelligence uh, apparatus, and that, that continues to be a massive part of who we are and what we do. Um, And, you know, for example, we just published our 2022 threat landscape document. We do one of these a year, and it's just kind of the collection of all the great uh, threat intelligence they've done over the year. And of course, it's baked into every product, you know, every decision we make, there's a threat intelligence real-time kind of component to it. And we've been always open with what we we do in threat intelligence. We don't try and hide it and, you know, make it just for us because the way we look at it is, you know, cybersecurity is... There's there's beyond a, the commercial aspect of it. There's kind of a, a justice aspect to it. We're trying to protect society. That's what we as an industry do, and so hiding that information doesn't really help solve that. So we took the same tact with with AI, and more so, you know, uh, we're able to attract really high quality data scientists because they get to publish their work. Uh, we don't create black box data science models that you know, oh, you can't look at it, we're not going to tell you how it's done. It's super secret. We publish everything that we do. and it's all on this ai.solas.com. And so you know all these different models I talked about all, that's all published there, and we encourage our, our scientists to publish this information out to the public. one because we think it's the right thing to do. but two, it's it, it, it does showcase you know the quality of our data science and, 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 and the team that we have. and it, you know something we'll continue to focus on
0: with that option to publish has that helped you guys attract some data scientists that had traditionally been operating like in academia yeah um, absolutely i mean i mean obviously from a, from an uh, academia
1: perspective publishing is one of the yeah. most critical elements of of what you do and so yeah we're able to uh, to have a great blend of of people who kind of cut their chops, you know, in academia, or went through getting a doctorate, and and you know, publishing was a key part of getting their doctorate, to people who've you know lived and bred in in the kind of the commercial side of things, and so we we bring you know both of those things together. So, uh, but everyone loves to show their work, right? Yeah. No, 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 like I, you know, back to the interactive television days. I remember, you know, we were working to uh, to be able to pause, and fast forward, and rewind. You know, video on demand, and while we take that for granted, you know, every day back in you know 1992, that was black magic, right? Oh it was, yeah. just, it was crazy, and and I remember the first time I showed that to somebody, they went, oh yeah, I can do it my VCR. I just wanted to cry. it was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was so much work, and so nobody wants to work so super hard on on you know AI and just hide it in some you know, you know, secret compartment that nobody can look at. They want to be able to, to showcase that. And so, you know, being able to publish it on aid at is definitely something our scientists love.
0: So is that, has that like always been baked into the culture at Sophos of publishing and sharing information like that?
1: Yeah, I think we want to, you know, if you were to ask our CEO, one of the things he'd like us to be known for globally is to be the most open company in the in the industry so open from our platform perspective open from you know what we publish open from our threat intelligence uh just just open we we just want you know we think the industry is better if you do that and and we want to certainly be a leader by doing that
0: and i'm sure that probably seeps into your ai strategy too which like observability is obviously a super hot topic today and really important for the future of developing ai and keeping the world like Safe as as more of our lives are controlled by automated things in the background.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the AI as it applies to cybersecurity started on the defensive side, right? So mm-hmm. it was how can we use AI models to to block bad things, and then the bad guys went, "Hey, how do I get around their AI?" So they started using AI, and so now we have this kind of you know arms race of you know defensive AI versus offensive AI. And you know that drives, unfortunately, uh, you know necessity is the motherhood of invention. So that drives a lot of the rapid pace of which the cybersecurity market moves now, and, and not only just in AI but in everything. Um, so never before have we been faced with such a skilled set of adversaries uh, and well-funded adversaries. And that, that's one of the things, frankly, that, that came out in our threat report was you know the commercialization of, of hacking continues to grow and grow and grow.
0: Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about that threat report. What's happening in the industry?
1: Yeah, so if you if you kind of you know short history on on kind of hacking, you know, you, you go back to you know kind of, kind of when it probably hit the mainstream the first time for for kind of headline news was uh back in the, in the days when there was you know the the Sasser and Melissa and I love you virus, all these things that were really kind of what they call worms. They would get into your environment and just kind of propagate and just cause mayhem. And and they were Mostly attacking vulnerabilities inside Microsoft Windows. And that's one of the reasons why Microsoft brought me in to help solve that. But that was a very kind of destructive hacking. And then, kind of, the next kind of big thing was this hacktivism, you know, this famous hacker group called Anonymous that would, you know, do hacking more to make a a political statement about things. And then, you know, there was always kind of nation state and espionage and all that stuff has been going on and, you know, it'll always go on in some form or fashion. But when the world really changed was the concept of ransomware. So I think it first came to you know everybody's top of mind when WannaCry hit and really kind of, you know, exploded across the, the globe. And you know, it was the first time people woke up to a screen on their computer saying, Hey, pay me money or I'm not gonna, you know, give you your data back. And it was a great way for the hackers to monetize their efforts. And so a whole kind of new economy was formed in the hacker community. And uh, what we initially saw was is you know pretty simple you know ransomware attacks. And then as the, de- the defense got better, uh, they became a little more sophisticated. And then the brilliant idea of, hey, instead of me doing the hacking, I'm going to enable others to do the hacking, and I'm going to take money from them. And so I'll let them do the dirty work. I'll give them the tools to do it. And we call that ransomware as a service. And that became pretty popular, um, and, but it was still relatively unsophisticated ransom attacks. And then the next phase we saw was much more sophisticated ransom attacks. And so instead of going after you know $500 a PC or $100 a PC, they're going to go after a, a, a company's backbone of their business and ask for $5 million in ransom. And instead of just using some what we would call prey and spray, just throw it out there and hope something sticks, but a very kind of almost nation state-like targeting of a company, spending lots and lots of time collecting reconnaissance, understanding where the data is, where the backups are, what vulnerabilities you can exploit, and kind of stealthily moving around the system, and then at the right time, launching the data uh, or the attack against the data. And so that became pretty popular. Uh, then what started to happen is companies got caught onto that and said, well, I'm going to start to up my data now. So if you actually ransom me, you're out. I'm just going to go to my backups. So the second stage of that came in and it's called extortionware, where they actually steal the data on top of encrypting the data. And then they threaten to leak your data if you don't pay. So the backup's not going to prevent the, the, the extortion from happening. Yeah. And what we see now in the, the current threat report is kind of the combination of those two things coming together. So you're taking this very sophisticated nation state-like tactics, and you're now applying that to the ransomware-as-a-service kind of business model. And so now, kind of malintented people with, with semi-technical skills can leverage these really powerful, advanced nation state-like tools that can talk to massive ransomware attacks and some of the the more recent ones that we've seen came through this model and so now you're you're basically productizing what used to be a little more kind of specific you know attacks to to a broader audience and so it's like the worst of both worlds it's it's now kind of a mass uh, uh mass campaigns but super tactical and very kind of customizable uh ransomware uh technology so the, you know and until the industry is able to shut that whole industry down they're making you know millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars it's just going to get worse and worse and worse so usually you know if you go back in history through threat reports you know every couple of years the threats change pretty radically you know ransomware has been the threat now for for five plus years and it just keeps getting kind of worse and um you know the great news is the defensive capabilities of sophos and and, and others have have made it harder for them but they, they are well funded, they're very intelligent and and they, they find ways to still be impactful and, and usually take advantage of the less prepared companies as well.
0: So that's that's the really scary stuff what's the what's the solution to that?
1: <laughs> so I think you know things like the adaptive cybersecurity ecosystem that's precisely why we built this is is part of the challenge with security historically is it looks at one very specific area. So the way I, I, I kind of use the analogy is, Uh, If you're trying to provide physical security for a building and and you had one guard looking at one door and one guard looking at the other door; those doors are going to be protected. But what if you know somebody starts to go through the window and you just had people at the door? Um, it, there's there's two things you need to have. You need to have eyeballs everywhere. That's really important. But you also need to have ways for those security guards to communicate with one another. And so now you have a coordinated uh, effort of eyeballs everywhere. The ability to analyze all the data that's coming in and then share information back to those security guards. Right. So now I could say, "Hey, security guard at, at door number one." We see someone trying to climb in the window around the corner, go get them. And you know, the security guard can now go look around the corner and you know grab the, the burglar by the feet, and pull out the window. Right. We, you know, historically security didn't work that way. You had a firewall, and the firewall is very focused on the on the network. And you had an endpoint, it's very focused on the endpoint. And so now with the adaptive cybersecurity ecosystem, we can use all those different visibility points. Pull all that information in. We can do analytics on it and, and and automate some responses. But those we can't automate, we can surface now to somebody who's looking at this whole ecosystem and say, "Hey, you know, here's the information you need to look at and confirm if somebody's actually trying to climb through the window, or maybe it's a legitimate employee and they they lock their keys in their office or something." You know, and so you have to be able to to do those types of of analytics, and that's the best way to defend this. You're not gonna defend it from just securing an endpoint or just looking at the network it's really this holistic
0: view so you can get like the tech side of things as secure as possible and like impossible for a bad actor to break in without th- any information that they need but eventually the the weak point becomes the people right that could be fished or social engineering to get them to give up their passwords or something what's how can we protect against that? Yeah. So it's it's an interesting question. And there's there's two
1: elements to that. There's the people side where you mentioned, you know, people getting spoofed and, you know, fished for their for their credentials. And then there's the people side where an IT administrator opens up the remote desktop protocol to the internet and doesn't know they did that. And you just basically opened, opened a door that you don't know anybody should be watching. And so there's, there's those human elements to it. Um, the, you know, on the phishing side, there's the you know, ability to train your employees. That's really, really important. Um, I know, for example, uh, I I've done that with my own family and now they won't open anything. I send them because, you know, I, you know, I'll put a link, I'll oh, look at this cool story. Oh, you're, you know, this, is this a phishing email and they'll send it right back to me. Part of me is really <laughs> proud. Uh, but uh, you know, but that's what you have to do. You have to train your employee base Uh, To not make those mistakes, and look, this is part of where the AI is coming in play for the attackers. Is they're understanding how to do these campaigns much better by using AI, and so you're going to always, you know, you can have an an employee base of ten thousand, and it only takes one to to let them in the door, right? And once they get in the door, they find vulnerabilities they can exploit, and and all of a sudden, game on. So to think you're going to keep somebody out is impossible. So the best way to handle that situation is presume there's going to be human error, presume someone's going to lose their credentials or leave an RDP port open, um, and then be prepared to deal with that and and to deal with it as quickly as possible. And that's where this kind of security practitioner leveraging these great tools comes into play. They can see things happening um, and, and they, they can stop it before it gets too bad. And so there, there's really two kind of elements to security. There's prevention and then there's detection. And in the detection. Uh, is there because the prevention will never be perfect now what's interesting about our industry is the pendulum always swings from one to the other and and we really need to let that pendulum just kind of hang in the middle because the reality is you always want to do everything you possibly can to prevent something from happening right it's it's the reason people put you know home alarm systems on on their their houses and you know some cases they put you know security cameras there and and i want to stop the crook from getting in um, but if the crook happens to get out, um, I would love to have a picture of them so we can go find them and, and get my stuff back. Um, what I don't want to do is just have the picture of them and then they're out the door with one of my kids, right? I, I want the alarm to go off when they kick the door in as well. So, you, you have to have both. And and what we do too often is industry goes, oh, well, you can't, you know, you'll never be perfect. So, just focus on detection. No, you, you got to do both because uh, as I mentioned before, most companies don't have the number of staff they need for their security operations. And the more they're chasing things that you could have blocked, you're just taking more time away from them. So block everything you can, but know you can't be perfect and make sure they can detect it. So that's the way you deal with it. You know you're not going to stop somebody from falling for a phishing email. You hope you're you you, you know, you're know 99.9% there, but there's that 0.1% you just have to make sure you have capabilities to detect.
0: Yeah. That actually reminds me of recently, I've done a couple interviews with a company called Axio. Uh, have you heard of them? They're in the I security have, yeah. space? Yeah. What what they're doing seems really cool in terms of helping companies hit that balance where they uh, give you like the tools to view security, cyber risk management as like a financial thing and decide how much cyber insurance to get or how much money to invest in protection and in different areas and assess your weaknesses. Yeah, all you're saying there just really made me think of that. Also, uh, their um, chief product officer, Rich, I think, was telling me about in for anti-phishing at their company, or they, they've had, they had, they like challenge each other of like, hey, see if you can fish me by the end of the week. And um, and like have kind of a competitive landscape there of trying to fish each other. And that seems like a really fun way to do that. It is. We,
1: we actually have a product it's called fish threat and that's what we do. We oh, allow nice. companies to create fake phishing campaigns and, and use it as a way to, to train their employees. So if their employees fall for it, they can train them on how they fell for it. And, and, you know, what bad things could have happened if that was a real fishing uh, attack. So, and we, we sell the daylights out of it because it is an effective tool for training people. But again, you know, there's, you're never perfect, right? So you do right. have to prepare for the worst. And, and the other thing that we've seen too, that's becoming a huge trend is because security is so, um, you're moving so fast and it's very sophisticated. Uh, many companies don't have their own security operation centers. They don't have security practitioners. They may have you know a couple of security people, maybe a handful of IT people, but they don't have that deep expertise. And so um, we have a service we call Managed Threat Response where we do it for them. So we uh, we manage you know their security threats and we respond to the the security threats for them. And that, that's a big part of the industry now. That that's that's growing. Um, it's it's probably the fastest part of our business that's growing because it's just so overwhelming for so many companies to deal with this. And what they're finding through these kind of supply chain attacks, or this everyone's. At risk now, you know. In the old days, as a small company, it's like ah, you know, why? Is, I'm just a plumbing supply company. Who would want to hack me? Ransomware is why they want to hack you. They can make money off of you. So everyone's, you know, at risk today. And and yet, you know, that plumbing supply company may not have the budget or the sophisticated IT staff to run a security operations center. So they kind of outsource it, and that that also helps there. And and th- those those services like ours will help. Kind of establish where you are with your security threat landscape and your security risk and things you need to do as well. And then, kind of the last piece of that is the cyber insurance industry is is actually mainstream now. Um, you know, a few years ago was oh, you know, that's kind of a crazy idea. Now it's mainstream. Yeah. And, and the good news with that, just as the car insurance industry drives safety, you know, standards and pushes for for this, they're doing the same thing. So they're they're pushing for companies. To, to take the right steps, to do the right things, to lower their insurance premiums or to get insurance at all. And that's that's actually driving a really good behavior for the industry. And uh, and so, you know, I, I think that'll continue to help shape behavior as well.
0: Yeah, that's really, I hadn't thought about it like that, how just like the existence and mainstream of cyber insurance just improves <laughs> the overall behavior, because it, it everyone's incentivized to, to have Better cyber hygiene. Well, look, th-
1: th- this is an area where capitalism works, right? The insurance <laughs> companies don't want have to pay out claims, and so they, they, you know, they're encouraged to encourage their their clients to do the right things from a security perspective, and then then everybody wins, right? When when anti-lock breaks comes out, you know, everybody wins, including the insurance companies because there's less accidents. But right. um, you know that that's kind of what we're seeing now in the industry, and and that's also helping to drive the rise of of security services because cyber insurance companies are going hey if you don't have the capabilities to do it yourself then leverage something like Sophos MTR to do it for you
0: nice so we've talked a lot about ransomware today and uh, i know you think a lot about the future of the industry and i'm curious what do you think comes after ransomware like the next threat on the horizon yeah it's
1: it's it's to be honest with you it's hard for me to see past it in the sense because it's there's so many things that have to happen before that's a viable financial path. Right. And a lot of it's not technology. Right. I think if there's one thing that that we can learn from from cyber defense is it's never you're never gonna have the problem solved. It's just not possible. I remember Bill Gates used to get mad at me every time he said, When am I gonna have an impenetrable Windows? And my answer would be never. And he would say, No, <laughs> come on, there has to be a way. I said, All right, here, here's a way. Unplug the keyboard, the mouse. The, the 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 you know the network cable you know do all that and, and you're secure right yeah but I, I can't type on it exactly right you know <laughs> and so so I mean it it we're, we're going to live in that world and and you know when I kind of look forward the things outside of the technologies that need to happen to stop the ransomware industry um, is the ability to enforce um, the law in, in countries where most of it comes from and it's not enforced there's kind of this unwritten rule. as long as you don't attack our country and you attack others, we'll kind of turn a blind eye to it. So that things like that have to change. Um, paying the ransom at all has to change, right? It's it's the old, we don't negotiate with terrorists because uh, the, the theory is if I pay you, you're just going to kidnap somebody else and I'll have to keep paying you until we do that. If we keep paying the ransom, they're just going to keep doing it. And so there's right. so many things that have to happen outside of a technical thing. And there's there's some good movement now and some of the stuff that, that came out of the the, the Biden administration on kind of security, uh, cybersecurity standards that SIS is driving, some really good progress there. Um, some of the standards that are coming out are really good. It's still not gonna be enough. And, you know, these these bad guys are very, you know, driven by the monetary benefits. Um, many, many of them, the reason they have nation-state uh skills is many of them are nation-state actors during the day and ransomware people at night. And so that's gonna continue to to flourish. And so I it's hard for me, to be honest with you, to see that. Slowing down anytime soon, and and you know, as a defensive, you know, company, I, I you know, I want to make it so darn difficult for them that even the money they're making is just not worth it anymore. That's the best I can do. But so much has to happen around the world to do that. And then, of course, you know, one thing that I'll never stop is you know, industrial espionage and na- nation-state uh, you know, spying activities, and that's going to you know, carry on in some form or fashion. You know, it's been carrying on since the founding of our nation, and it'll. It'll go on, you know, for, for many, many years in the future, you know, regardless of what technology is available to them.
0: Yeah, definitely. But when you're talking about not paying the ransomware, that's such a hard thing because I mean businesses pay it because it's it's a sound business decision to pay it.
1: Right well, <laughs> it, it it seems like it would be, right? And I think, you know, one of the reasons why attackers when they have a human element associated to them are so successful is they create a panic and a sense of urgency, right? So we see a lot of very simple cybercrime going on where, and, and some of it's not even cybercrime. It'll be someone will call, you know, somebody in an accounting department at, uh, at a company and they've done a bunch of LinkedIn research, for example, I know who the CFO is and the CEO is and their boss. And they'll say, Hey, you know, the CFO, so-and-so said, you have to wire this money right away. You know, they're going to turn off our, this service, which is important for this part of the business. And you know here's the wire information. Oh, you know, and, and, you know, CFO told me to, to tell you to do it right now. And they're like, oh, or, or you're gonna lose your job. Oh God, I better do this, or I'm gonna lose my job. Right. And and they just create this panic and this sense of urgency. And so when, when a company like you know, Colonial Pipeline, for example, gets ransomed, man, there's a big sense of urgency there when the whole East Coast uh, you know, is shut down from a from a fuel, you know, transportation perspective. But what we've seen and through some of our research is, you know, 80% of the costs associated with with not paying the ransom are still incurred when you pay the ransom. So I may have paid you know millions and millions of dollars in ransom. I'm still going to incur eighty percent of the same costs that I would have incurred if I didn't pay the ransom. And so you're not really getting off free. And there's no kind of guarantee that they just won't come back again. That there's some stealthy piece in their environment that's still there. That you know you can't like oh I paid the ransom they're going to go away I'm good. No they're not. You know they're going to keep coming back. And so all those steps you would have had to take to get them out. If you didn't pay the ransom, you still have to take, and there's still systems you have to rebuild. Um, You know, the the decryption keys didn't work, or you know, whatever. And they don't care, right? They got their money, and so to some degree, it's not a good business decision to do it. Uh, This is where the extortion, where it comes in, though, right? So each company's different. If there's things you don't want the world to know about you, then, then yeah, maybe you're you're kind of stuck paying it. But until we don't pay it, there, you know, it's going to be hard for it to go away because again, it's going to be difficult to be perfect. And the defense against it and so until they can stop monetizing it they'll just keep coming
0: yeah that ma- that makes sense with that holistic view of the cost of rebuilding and also the risk that you might not rebuild correctly and they're they're still in there somewhere
1: yeah it's that you know the panic of ending the downtime you know we got to get the pipeline running yep you still got to rebuild all those systems mostly right and and you're still going to have you know problems even after you pay the ransom
0: Well, before we wrap up, is it cool if I ask you a couple leadership questions about? Sure, absolutely. Love to. Cool. So, recently, I I had on this company called Allstream, which they provide like business communication services. And I actually got to talk to their CEO a lot about like fiber tech and low latency communication tech. And it was a really fun episode. But another thing that he was talking about was how important it is to bring up leaders in the organization at every level and really encourage people to set a solid example for the, the people around them. And I'm, I'm curious, how do you bring up the next generation of leaders at your company?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a great question. One of the things that I always tell people I mentor, whether it's you know going back to, to, to uh, UCF and, and talking to the engineering students or it's you know people inside the company, is you don't have to be in a leadership role to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I learned this firsthand. So when I was doing the the, the, the cool stuff I mentioned at Oracle, um, I was I was leading a lot of things, even though I wasn't the leader of the area I was doing. Just because I was, you know, thinking out of the box, I was collaborating with people, I was, you know, solving problems and 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 doing it as a team. And, you know, that really helped my leadership, you know, my leadership skills kind of shined in that regard. So I always tell people, you don't have to be a manager or a director or a VP to be a leader. So you can, you can lead by, you know, gathering, you know, folks in, in the organization to solve a problem or even just solving it yourself through initiative, I'll lead by example. Um, but it's also great for a company to have a formal program to identify leaders and and grow them, um, and and grow them, giving them exposure to the the elements that help them grow as a leader, getting exposure to mentors that can teach them from the mistakes. And I mentioned I learned more from that failed company than than anything. Hey, I I I tell a lot of people about what I've learned there, and hopefully they won't make the same mistakes I made. Um, and then there's there's another thing that's okay to learn too, is not everybody is a leader, and that's okay. Um, it, it's great to identify the leaders. Uh, grow them, or have people self-identify it, it, and to get into these programs. But in the technical space, in particular, there's a lot of people just love to code, or they just want to do their job, or they just they don't want to manage people or lead it or do anything, and that's fine. And and it, what's great is find tracks for them because they can also provide different types of leadership per se, maybe outside of what we consider leadership in the mainstream. Um, but they, they just want to you know advance and work on cooler and cooler things and, and give them those opportunities. But in Sophos, for example, we have a, a really good program where we can identify people pretty early in their careers and make sure they have the right exposure, the right tools, the right training uh, to grow into leaders. And, and, and I think one of the most important aspects of that is, is mentorship.
0: So I, I have, kind of two questions. What are some of the attributes that you look for that tell you, like that help you identify leaders? And then also how is feedback built into the system to like, let someone know like, Hey, we've identified you that like you've really solid leadership skills and we want to help you develop those. Do you want that? Yeah. You know,
1: yeah, so on on the first part, everyone's got a different opinion, and I won't go through all of the the character traits. But there's a couple that I found to be very very important in a leader. One is I think a leader needs to inspire people to do things that they don't necessarily think they may have been able to do, right? So you hear about it a lot in sports. You know, Tom Brady is a great leader because he makes every team he's on better than they would be without him. Not just because of his play, but all the players just kind of rally. And become better versions of themselves. And the same happens in any company, right? Is A a good leader will inspire people to want to do something, not do something because they're told to do something. And a key character trait in that is humility, right? And and, and you mentioned feedback, the ability to be self-reflective and to take feedback. And that's part of being humble. Um, It's tough as any human being to hear something negative about themselves. um, But the leader who really kind of Takes that feedback and does and, and actions on it to make themselves better, that's a great leader. Um, and it's, it doesn't need, you don't have to be a leader to have that character trait, but I think a leader has to have that character trait. Um, as I mentioned before, that the reason why I learned so much about that failed company was. I didn't really have a lot of humility up to that point because I never had adversity. Like everything I did turned to gold. And, you know, you you think you learn a lot from your success, but you learn more about yourself from failure. And so when you get feedback and, and you know, it's always good to hear positive feedback too. So it's great to get both. But when you hear that, like when I hear negative feedback or you could have done this better, but it, it's like, I can't sleep at night until I know like I have a plan to address that feedback and get better. And when I can take that feedback from my own team, um and i respond to it whether it's about how i run the organization or how i behave personally or how you know i can make another team do something different and it gets done it inspires confidence in your leadership ability and so at, at any point whether you're that individual contributor showing leadership on a project or you're a ceo the the ability to be self-reflective take feedback and be humble about it i think is is the most important trait of a good leader
0: do you do you have time for a couple more questions still sure yeah so you mentioned a lot about learning from failure there. What's your process of managing failure within sophos with your employees like how do you encourage the learning?
1: yeah so so it's interesting and I think each each co- uh, company has a different mentality for it. and also different stages of companies can be a little more cavalier about what I'm about to say so I, I don't want to make it so you know blanket uniform that you know it, it sounds naive but uh in my opinion, if you don't fail, occasionally you're not pushing hard enough, right? So failure is part of the process, right? Any part of any scientific process is failure. And, and if you're not, you know, pushing, you're, you're, you're not, you you know, you have to fail every once in a while. And again, you've got to learn from the failure. I don't want to keep repeating the same failure over and over again, but I do want to push hard, fail, learn, adapt, push hard again. And uh, I I wrote a blog uh, on, um, I'm a New York Yankees fan. So when Yogi Berra passed, I wrote a blog on taking all his famous sayings and applying them to to business. And one of his famous sayings is, if there's a fork in the road, take it. And and I thought that was a brilliant kind of business saying because a lot of people get to that fork in the road and just start analyzing, should I go that direction, that direction? i go that direction. I'm going to go here. I go that direction. And then they overanalyze things in some degree, just just pick a pick a pick a path. You yeah. know, It turns out it's the wrong path. Come back to the fork and, and then go down the other path. But just standing there at the fork wondering which path I should take, you know, in cyber, it's really important. So we move too fast to, to do too much analysis and, you know, kind of analysis paralysis. And so, you know, to me, it's 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 all about you know driving as fast as you can, um, doing everything with, you know, strong quality. Obviously, in security, you have to be high quality. But be willing to make mistakes, be willing to have some minor failures and learn from it and move on. I know obviously no one likes catastrophic failures, right? You don't want to be a, a guy building a bridge. <laughs> hey, let's try this thing. And if let's it doesn't work harder, hard we'll build another bridge. You know, you don't, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's, I don't want to make it naive to sound like it's applicable everywhere. But in, in my world, push hard. It's okay to fail. We'll learn from it. We'll move on and just keep pushing hard. It's like, you know, get up, dust yourself off and keep running.
0: Yeah, I really like that that fork in the road quote because I think that's really applicable, especially to like the engineer's mind. Like yeah. engineers in particular, really you're used to being able to figure out how something is going to go down and picking the right path first. <laughs> but, yeah,
1: and it, what's great is in with today's development tools and, and the world we live in, the feedback loop you get from that is pretty mm-hmm. immediate, right? So you, you'll know pretty quickly... If uh, if you've made a mistake, and ideally you can do it in an environment that's maybe not a production environment or whatever, so the impact's a little bit low. But I- I'm also talking strategy. It's it's fine to you know we went we went down a path at Sophos where we built this. I think it's the most advanced encryption product to ever you know see light in the world, and it just wasn't right for the market at the time, and so. It didn't. It wasn't as successful as we thought. Hey, we learned a lot. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not ashamed. I think the the tech we built is still the the best thing the encryption world's ever seen. It just wasn't right for the market at the time. So we learned, we kind of adjusted and, and took a different path, and that's fine. And you know, so for the team, you know, it was the team was like, oh, that 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 was a failure. No, no, it wasn't a failure. You know, I think it was Thomas Edison. No, we just learned how to not build the light bulb. We just learned. You know, that <laughs> understanding the timing of the market is as important as is building cool tech. And we'll learn the next time and we won't make that same mistake.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, what was one of the biggest challenges that you came up against the first time you formally went from individual contributor to manager?
1: Yeah, I think the first challenge every new manager has is giving somebody a difficult message right? Uh, at our heart, we're all nice people. Uh, as I mentioned, the hardest thing to do is, is telling somebody they don't have a job anymore. The hardest thing to do is telling someone they're not doing a good job. And, and particularly if they're if you're friends with them, right? And a lot of cases, you know, that new manager may have been on the team and they're friends with people and now they're the manager. And sometimes it's very hard for them to sit down with somebody that they like, uh, that they've been friends with or, or, or whatever and say, hey, you're not doing a good job. Here's the things I need to see you do better at, or you know, we're gonna to have to make a change. It's a really, really hard message, and and there's plenty of other you know things that are challenging to a new manager as well. Is kind of starting to pull away from doing everything yourself and letting others do it. Kind of that, but I think that's the hardest part. When I see young managers, that's the part that they struggle the most with. It's it's yeah, they'll struggle a little bit again with you know delegation and letting other people do stuff they used to do themselves, but they kind of eventually get there. I, I've seen people carry through many layers of their careers, the difficult task of telling someone they're they're not doing well. Cause it, it is hard. I mean, even today I, I hate doing it. Um, particularly if it's a, you know, a, a really nice person and, you know, they're trying really hard. Um, but it's still that's
0: part of your job, you know, is, is to do that. And it's tough. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've definitely run into that before where I had like an employee that like wasn't doing so hot. And I really just couldn't bring myself to give that feedback. And I just got lucky that the situation worked, that worked itself out and um, they got a better job somewhere else. I'm like, Hey, I'm leaving. I was like, Oh man, sorry to see you go. Uh, (laughs) I was saying this, this harkens back to the, 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 uh, the, the humility
1: part, right. Is the ability to, to take feedback. It's also to give feedback. Right. Right. So I kind of have an unwritten rule is nobody in my organization should ever be surprised if they got fired, right? For for lack of performance, right? Mm-hmm. So they should have known they've had a performance issue. You should give them feedback. You should give them all the benefit to try and improve on that feedback and give them coaching and mentoring and whatever it takes. But if they don't improve, they should know they haven't improved. And then when you finally sit down and say, hey, look, it's not working out, they should go, yeah, I knew this was coming, right? As disappointing as it may be to them, they knew it was that, That's leadership as well is, you know, people are going to have struggles in their careers. And there's some people that I worked with that really struggled. But because of the feedback and the help and the coaching, they became great employees, because maybe they didn't know they were making those mistakes. or they didn't understand the impact of those mistakes. And so I think it's really important to to give that feedback. And that's why it's difficult when you're a new manager, people are afraid to give it because the way I look at it is you're actually helping that employee. You're not hurting yeah. them, you're helping them. So they know they can't fix it if they don't know to fix it. Right. And that's the message I give my people on my team too. It's like, if you have feedback for me, you know, I don't care if you're, you know, two weeks out of college and, and you look at me and go, Oh God, I can't tell a chief product officer they are being stupid about this. Yes, you can. Cause I don't <laughs> want to make a mistake anymore. And you want me to make a mistake. So if I don't hear it, I can't fix it. And the same goes back down to the employee as well.
0: Yeah. And I think that also speaks to something I've heard a lot of brilliant leaders talk about, which is trying to eliminate defensiveness in in their organization and and how damaging defensiveness can be. Absolutely. That's the, that's
1: the humility part, right? That's being open-minded and, and human nature is when somebody tells you something negative, human nature is to get defensive. That's just, that's just our nature, right? And so you got to kind of stop that nature from happening, or at least recognize that you're doing it and then be open-minded. Like I've, I've seen several people that I've given negative feedback to, and they get very upset and very angry. And then the next day they're like, you know what? I thought about it. You're right. You know, I did realize. And so they just got caught up in the moment. I give them, you know, a, a little bit of time to kind of take it in. I don't, you know, get in a confrontation with them over it. And then they, come back and go, you know, I th- I think you're right. I, I I recognize that I am doing that. And that's the the light bulb moment when you go, hey, this person's great. But if they never, you know, can admit to a mistake or a fault, then you know they're probably not the right fit because they're not going to grow as a person. Right. We we're all human. We all make mistakes. We all have faults. And in, until you can recognize them and, and work on them, you, you just can't grow as a person. And nobody's perfect. Right. So, you know, I always tell, you know, my, my, my kids are all, you know, big sports fans, like, you know, Babe Ruth struck out a lot, you know, maybe the greatest player of all time, but he, he failed a lot too. And, you know, that you you take the good with the bad and, you know, you you just got to keep working.
0: Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't get to touch on that we want to make sure we get out to the world today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would just say like I didn't have a lot of time to go through kind of all the awesomeness in our uh, uh, 2022 threat report. Give it a good read. It, again, it's on Sovos.com. Um, go, go and read it. It's really enlightening, tremendous work done by our threat intelligence team. And then I think you did a promo for AI.Sovos.com. Follow that, too. If you're if you're interested in data science, you're not even a, a cyber person. There's just so much great knowledge that's shared through sofas.com we're, we're very proud to share it with the with the industry so I would say go, go, d- go definitely check out those two things and then obviously if you haven't heard of sophos or don't know a lot about us when you go there to read those two things just check out sophos we're a, you know we've been around for a long time great security company you know cutting edge technology and wonderful people and uh, and I think you know you'll you'll find great stuff there through the AI threat intelligence or just anywhere uh, else.